Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. We're excited today we begin a brand new series through the book of Mark entitled, Who is Jesus? Now, for those of you who might be new to the Bible, the New Testament begins with these four different biographies of Jesus' life. Mark, which is the second one, is actually the first one that was ever written. It's the shortest, it's punchy, it's quick, and it mostly focuses on the works and the miracles that Jesus did culminating on the cross. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen Bob Ross do painting on PBS years ago. Uh, actually, my kids are really into it. But it's fascinating watch this, watching this guy paint these masterpieces in such a short amount of time. But the, my favorite part is actually the beginning. When he starts with these kind of more abstract, large brushstroke things in the background that don't make any sense until the very end when it's colored in through things that are more close up, then all of a sudden you start to realize uh, what those things were that just seemed like blobs, seemed like just kind of big, broad paint brushstrokes, all of a sudden begin to take shape. And so in order for us to dive deep into the book of Mark, we have to kind of set the stage. We have to kind of paint the background of the canvas, if you will, so that as we begin to focus in and get close up on some of the details and the verses and the chapters to follow, that we'll be able to understand what sort of lens we need to be looking through. The first thing we want to pay attention to is who wrote this book. Uh, it, it Obviously, some of you guys will go, well, it's Mark, obviously. Um, if you're reading along the New Testament, you will find this character come up again and again, and his name is Mark or John, and oftentimes referred to just as John Mark. And John Mark was someone who we know through the book of Acts was the son of Mary who had a house near Jerusalem. It's actually the same Mary a lot of theologians believe where Jesus would have shared his last supper. And so John Mark at that time maybe would have been a boy. Um, It's a young child as Jesus and his disciples uh, were eating around this table. We later on find out that uh, he travels with the apostle Paul and his family members, extended family member Barnabas, for a season until Uh, Paul decides that he shouldn't go with them anymore and kind of kicks them off the team. But later on in his life, we find him being in Rome with Peter. Uh, In the end of Peter's life, he records in his letter that he has a desire to make an account of Jesus' life. And we know that um, Peter was executed in 64 AD. He was crucified on a cross upside down while he was in Rome. And we know that John Mark was with him during that time. And so most historians and theologians believe that the gospel of Mark is actually largely Peter's eyewitness account that John Mark is translating for him. And this is this all kind of funnels in. So as you read the book of Mark, you want to be thinking through a couple of things. Number one, what was Peter's encounter like? With Jesus. The second thing we want to look at is what sort of map did Mark give us in order to tell the story? What was he getting at? Because one of the unique things about Mark is it wasn't written in kind of this chronological order, let's say like Luke. 
Um, it doesn't focus heavily on the teachings like John. Um, it doesn't tie in Israel's story and the messianic prophecies like Matthew. Um, like I said, it, it's, it's quick. It's the shortest one. It focuses kind of right out the gate on some of the miracles that Jesus is doing. And so there's kind of three large sections of this book. Number one, it focuses on Jesus' ministry kind of in, in, in ancient Palestine, in the Galilee area. The middle of the book focuses on Jesus' transition from Galilee to Jerusalem. And at the centerpiece of this book is a really interesting story about Jesus being transfigured into all of the glory that God has. Uh, which many believe is kind of the focal point of Mark's gospel, is that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And thirdly, the last part of Mark's gospel focuses not on years while he's in Galilee, but rather one week when he's in Jerusalem, leading up to the, his death on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. But one of the interesting things about Mark's gospel is how it ends is rather abrupt. Now, if you're reading along in, in a translation like the NIV, what you'll see is, the end of the gospel, there's a footnote that some of this was um, kind of added later by the early church to kind of round off the ending, but the actual early manuscripts of Mark into Jesus' resurrection, but just kind of abruptly stops. This is the last verse of Mark in the early manuscripts, verse 8 says this, Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And then it just stops. There's no ascension. There's no uh, kind of kind of resolution to this whole thing. It's just they kind of scatter. He's risen from the dead. They're confused. And there's a couple different theories why. Um, one is that either um, Peter's death or even John Mark's death would have stopped him from finishing this work, which is which is unlikely. It's it's one theory, but probably the more more common theory, more likely theory is that John did this on purpose. But if you look at how John writes, other than the very first verse of the gospel, he's writing to get a response from the listener. The response he's trying to gather from, from the reader or from the listener is, who do you think Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? And so he does this by this, this quick, um, abrupt way of writing. It's interesting. One of the most common words in Mark's gospel is the word immediately. It's used 42 times, uh, but it's only used 12 times in the rest of the New Testament. There's something about that he's trying to say, like, listen, here's Jesus. What do you think? Who is he? And, and to be honest, that's, that's my hope, is that as we go through this as a church, is that we would be left with that question, who is Jesus? And maybe for some of you, you're you're trying to figure that out. You're a skeptic. You're an agnostic. You're trying to kind of sort through who this Jesus character is. Maybe for some of you, you have been kind of just disenchanted uh, with, with religion or with Jesus. Uh, maybe through the past couple of years of the pandemic or through the church, there's this sense of like, I, I don't know exactly who I think Jesus is. Maybe for some of you, you have just steeped yourself in just kind of a, a religion or a religious sort of lifestyle and that you kind of lost the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is. But my hope is that no matter who you are or where you are, is that this book, the studying of this book over the next few weeks as we go through the 16 chapters of Mark, is that at the end of it, we'd be able to answer that question, who is Jesus? 
And so we're going to begin in the first 13 verses of the very first chapter. But before we dive into our text for the day, um, I want you to, to imagine with me uh, the very first time this was read. Remember, this is the first book. It was written in Rome. It was written what we believe primarily to be to Roman non-Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians living in Rome. But it's written during a very specific time. So don't imagine hearing these words sitting in a coffee shop in the chapel or in La Paloma or in your living room or in your car, somewhere that's comfortable. I want you to imagine hearing these words deep in the dark of night, underneath the city in the catacombs, surrounded by skulls, because you are fearing for your life. This is the context in which the early listeners and readers would have heard these words. You see, around 59 AD, Caesar Nero came to power. And when he came to power um, after Caesar Augustus, about the first five years were pretty quiet peaceful and something happened uh, where most historians believe he lost his mind and in 64 AD he literally lights the city of Rome on fire. The fire was so extensive that it burned without stopping for seven days. Most historians believe that 80% of the city was destroyed. Now Rome was the center of the ancient world at the time. Millions of people lived in this ancient city. You could imagine it being like any other large city. There were, there were slums, there was plumbing issues, there was communication issues, there was political uprising, there's all sorts of things happening in this multi-million person city and 80% of it burns to the ground. And in fear for his life, Caesar Nero blames the early Christians, this kind of radical, just uh, new kind of religious sect that's just coming out of Judaism, and he's looking for someone to blame, and he blames the Christians. And as a result of this, he begins this intense persecution, onslaughting these, this, the early church. And so he would take them away in the middle of their gatherings, he would uh, put them in the Colosseum to be attacked by animals. He would, uh, there was stories of him executing them, crucifying them. Some of them would literally be burned at the stake in his gardens as lanterns. I mean, it was horrendous what was happening to the early church at that time. And you can imagine 64 AD, one of those people who dies is, is the apostle Peter. And Mark is finishing up this record and he starts to circulate this. And there's, a, there's an element of urgency in Mark's writing as he's trying to encourage and compel the early church that the very real threat of death, that as the empire is literally being flipped upside down, that the Jesus who they're following is who he said he was. And so imagine with me that you're in that place you're in that dark space wondering, is this all worth it? Is Jesus worth it? And the reason I want us to start there is not only just to give us the correct context in which we should be reading this, but also to realize that this has a lot of relevance for where we are today. You see, 
we are in the middle of our own upheaval. We're in the middle of our own level of uncertainty at a global level. Much of what we knew a few years ago has been burned to the ground, that there is this sense of unrest and uncertainty of what's to come. Randall Schweller, who's a political scientist, in his book in 2014, kind of dubbed this new phrase we're coming into as a gray zone. It's, it's this undefined sense that culture is shifting. We just don't know what it's shifting to. He writes this, We're well, in a time of significant and rapid worldwide change called a gray zone. The world is undergoing transformation. A chaotic period where most anything can happen and little can be predicted. Where yesterday's rule takers become tomorrow's rule makers. But no one follows rules anymore. When competing global visions collide with each other where remnants of the past, present, and future coexist simultaneously. And he goes on to talk about how global pandemics, which we, again, this was in 2014, but we are now in the middle of it, they don't start cultural change, but rather they accelerate it. So what was already brewing the past 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, because of what's happened the past two years, has accelerated this change. Mark Sayers, in his recent book, A Non-Ancient Presence, uh, talks about the cultural shift like this. He says, we are moving into our in-between moment in which the usual rules do not apply. The makers and measurements that we use to find a sense of place and direction do not operate in this phase. This can create anxiety, yet we will also discover that in-between moments are filled with potential. They are the moments over where, which the Spirit of God hovers over, waiting to bring new creation. Gray zones are filled with pressures and chaos, yet they are where God does something exponential, exceptional inside His people, calling us to Himself in a new and profound way. Um, and although I don't, there's not a perfect correlation between the, the ancient Rome that had just burned down and all that we've gone through in the past two years, both of which people are looking to what is reality? Where do we go from here? And this is where Mark's gospel begins. So we're going to read the first 13 verses and then we're going to break them up. It says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. At once 
the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was with the wilderness 40 days. Being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. This is such a beautiful opening. Um, it, it's, it's less kind of like that, the, the quiet, artistic opening of a Pride and Prejudice um, or something like that. And it's more like a James Bond movie. It just out the gate is making some bold statements and jumps you right into the story. So three different things we're going to be looking at in the opening lines of this book. Number one is that it introduces us to, to Jesus as the subversive victor. Secondly, the comforting shepherd. And thirdly, the resurrection life. Uh, let, let's begin with this first one. that the, the opening verse of Mark reveals Jesus as this subversive victor, even in the midst of chaos. Mark 1 1 says it's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, there's these two words out the gate it starts with. Number one is this word in the beginning, RK in the Greek, which is a clear connection to the very opening words of the entire Bible. And Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Mark starts his gospel the same way. In the beginning, Arche, reminding us that the story of Jesus is actually the story of reality. That who Jesus is is not just being plopped into the middle of history. This is a part of this, the God story, the human story of all time. And then he says that in the beginning, in the same way in Genesis, it began this beautiful creative act of God of bringing beauty and order out of chaos. Jesus' story, the beginning of that story, plunges into the darkness and chaos of, of that day. And it says that... Um, and it says that it began, it says the beginning of the good news of Jesus. Now that second second word, um, good news, or the word gospel, is the word euangelion. Now, both in Hebrew and in Greek, this word is used to describe a, a sort of military victory. Um, it talks about when the Philistines defeated the troops of Saul in Mount Gilboa. It uses that word in 2 Samuel. And although it talks about a victory in battle, it also is used more currently with the birthday of Caesar Augustus, somewhere around the turn of the millennium, was hailed as a euangelion. And so, uh, but something that's interesting is, although it, this word euangelion, good news, right, in the beginning, at the beginning of it all, at the beginning of this story, there is this euangelion, this good news. It doesn't. It means a military victory in one level, but the other way, it's kind of there's a new king. But here's what's fascinating: in the Greek, every time, and I'm talking about all Greek literature, not the Bible, it is used in the plural sense. Like this is good news among many. But in the New Testament, it's actually used in the singular, meaning it's not a good news. It is the good news. And so right out the gate, Mark says, listen, this is a much bigger story than you realize. And this is much better news than you've ever heard. And he says that Jesus is the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. And it would be easy as an ancient 
follower of Jesus to be like, that's a really big claim. It's a, it's a, it's a, there's a boldness to that. But I also think that in our day and age, we have to, we have to wrestle with the same thing. Again, who is Jesus? Do we really believe that Jesus is not a good news? He is the good news that ties into the big story that we're all out. Not just your story, not Jesus coming to change your life, but Jesus is coming to change the entire course of human history. It reorients us around um, reality. But again, you're in the middle of Rome that's just burned down and you're fearing for your life. And you have to realize that what Jesus came to do is to bring a different kind of kingdom and just overthrowing the Roman Empire, which is very much being oppressive over the early church. Uh, yesterday, um, we were at home and Jen began, decided that she wanted to repot all of our indoor plants. So we got a bunch of like potting soil and um, and we're, we're taking all of our plants, which I didn't realize we had so many until yesterday. And we're bringing them all outside and we're taking them out of their pots, loosening up the soil, repotting them in, in, in soil and getting her hands dirty. And then she takes out this bag of these clay, like little clay balls. They look like boba or like, um, and, and she puts them in this bowl and she starts putting in these little seedlings and other parts of plants. And we're all kind of watching, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm propagating. I'm like, proper what? She's like, I'm propagating. It, it, this is a way that new root systems grow. And as I'm watching this, this new soil being introduced to these plants, and I'm watching this propagation process, and then I remember asking her, are you excited? And she said, we'll have to see. We'll have to see if this actually takes root. And it reminded me of a trip I had to Oaxaca down in the southern tip of Mexico years ago. And I was there with some friends who were working with an amazing nonprofit called Plant With Purpose. And we're there in these really, really poor rural areas that have been devastated by deforestation. And we're walking this area that these entire hillsides now are just forests of trees. And I'm just thinking, like, what amazing, beautiful work. And it's what it's done to the agriculture, to the farming to the soil erosion. It's literally revitalizing these farming villages. And then they take me into this nursery where they're showing me these places of these little tiny like cups of these plants coming up. And they're telling me about the process of propagation and that the forest that I had just seen that they had planted years ago all started because of this little tiny seed. And I think it's why Jesus, when he talks about his kingdom, talks about it like a seed. You know, we think about the ideas of these massive ideas and philosophies and world powers and where is God in the midst of it. And we expect him to show up in these kind of these big uh, sort of explosive ways. And But what you see in the middle of this opening line, this is a huge story, but it's starting in a small seed. And I think that's really important for us as we go through Mark's gospel that we will see someone kind of in an ancient rural farming village with no education and no political power literally flip the world upside down in a few hundred years. And he did this by propagating a new kingdom. 
And our, our struggle, like the early church, is can we see this new sense of reality that Jesus is promising, even when the world circumstantially feels like everything's falling apart? Eugene Peterson says like this, Every call to worship, which this book is doing, it's calling us to, to Jesus. Every call to worship is a call into the real world. I encountered such constant and widespread lying about reality each day and meet with such skilled and systematic distortion of the truth that I'm always in danger of losing my grip on reality. But the reality, of course, is that God is sovereign and Christ is Savior. The reality is that prayer is my mother tongue and the Eucharist my basic food. The reality is that baptism, not Myers-Briggs, defines who I am. And I, I love Peterson's quote. He says that what Jesus is doing in his kingdom with the sacraments is he's calling us into what he calls the real world. And I, and I love his last line. He talks about one of the ways we do this is baptism, right? It's not our Enneagram or Myers-Briggs that defines who we are. It's rather this, this death life motif that Jesus bringing resurrection out of it. And that is exactly how Mark starts his gospel. One thing you should know about the gospel of Mark is it doesn't begin with the nativity story. It begins with baptism, and Mark is doing this, again, because his main goal here is not to tell a chronological history of Jesus. He's using it as a track, an ancient witnessing tool to say, let's begin the story of reality here. And he begins to start telling the story. So this moves to our second point, that not only are we introduced to this subversive king, we're introducing to a comforting shepherd, even in the midst of the wilderness. Mark 1, 2 through 8 says this, as a witness in Isaiah the prophet, says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling into the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, making straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist, or John, John the baptizer, appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, Mark through the lens of Peter and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit begins his story with that opening statement, Jesus is the Son of God. This is a bigger story than you realize and immediately jumps into this the story of John the baptizer. And he does a couple things here. Number one is he, he connects John the Baptist's activity with this ancient Hebrew text 500 years before found in the scroll of Isaiah that predicts that before the Messiah come, God's rescuer anointed one comes, there's going to come one who prepares a way for him. It's interesting that in this verse, it literally talks about what John's wearing. He's wearing camel's hair with a leather belt. He's eating locusts. All of those are pointing to another prophecy that says that, he, that that's exactly what Elijah 
war. Elijah was the greatest prophet in the Jewish imagination. One of the reasons he was the greatest is not because of the miracles that he did, because he actually never died. Elijah was just lifted up into heaven. And so the prophecy goes that Elijah will come back and he will prepare the way for the Messiah. So all of a sudden, here comes this wild prophetic guy baptizing people in the Jordan. And guess what he's wearing? Elijah's clothing. And so everyone's starting to put two and two together. Oh, this is the moment we've been waiting for. And people are going out and checking him out. Is this Elijah? And John the Baptist so profoundly says, listen, you may be impressed with what's going on here, but know that there's one coming after me who I am not even worthy to untie their sandals. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And, and the way Mark does this is, is so brilliant. He doesn't just start telling this story about some obscure guy in the desert. He ties it back to prophecy. And in Isaiah, Isaiah 40, um, is the passage that he draws from. And I want to just point out a couple things here I think that are really important here. Um, when when a, an old prophecy is quoted, keep in mind, no one had their own like codex of scripture. They would memorize it. And so that one phrase would open them up to like the larger portion of scripture. The same way, if you remember Bethany who spoke last week, she dropped the line, um, from Dumb and Dumber, um, the, about like our, the, our pets' heads are falling off or something like that. But the, as she said this line from Dumb and Dumber, it reminds me of the whole movie. And in the same way, when, when Mark here quotes Isaiah, it's reminding them of the whole passage. Now, what's the whole passage of the one preparing the way? Listen to how it starts. This is Isaiah chapter 40. It says this, comfort, comfort. My people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. So the voice of one calling in the wilderness is one who's speaking a word of comfort to a hurting and an exhausted people. If you keep reading, what you find in verse 10, it says this, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. So here's, here's these two pictures. If you hear this prophecy of a voice of one calling in the wilderness, making straight ways for the Lord, you're going to be immediately struck by two things. Number one is that God is coming with a deep comfort and a powerful shepherding. And this would have meant so much, not only to the people who would have first heard this, but to the people who are literally under threat of death in Rome. And it should be, mean deep comfort for us on the edge of two years of a pandemic and, and large levels of uncertainty and worry. Is What does this mean that Jesus has come, that a way has been prepared? It means deep comfort. And it means a powerful shepherd. This is what God has promised. And this is what the world cannot provide. I mean, isn't it interesting that no matter how much we try and escape, numb out, try different things, comfort seems elusive. No matter how many people we trust, politicians we vote for, shepherding seems elusive. 
the point that Jesus is coming. Who is Jesus? He is the one who's made, that has been made away through John the Baptist for what? Because he's bringing deep comfort to an exhausted and hurting and oppressed people. And he's bringing shepherding and powerful might to people who desperately need rescuing. Um, a while ago, we were at Disneyland with our kids. And it was the first time that Augustine was tall enough to go on the big kid rides. And what was so cool is we went on Indiana Jones. Our kid, None of our kids had ever been on this ride. And it had been years since I'd been on Indiana Jones. And one of the things I love about this ride is that the line itself is actually really entertaining. And you're going and you're seeing all these holes and you're like, what are these holes in the walls for? And someone in line is like, oh, those are for when the arrows, the poison arrows shoot out. And, and all of a sudden my, my now six-year-old Augustine uh, starts getting really nervous. He's like, what do you mean that there's arrows? And I begin pulling my son aside. I begin to start saying, like, hey, listen. You can sit next to me on the ride. Things are going to look really scary. And there's even going to be a part where fake arrows get shot and you feel these bursts of wind coming out. I said, but you need to know all of this is not real. And he's, and he's looking at me and he's like kind of, kind of nervous, but he's like, okay, dad, I'm tracking. Essentially, all of the stuff you're going to see and encounter, no matter what it does to your senses, know that there's actually a greater sense of reality happening, meaning that there is some sort of ride designer who designed all of this stuff so that no one would actually get hurt. So we get on the ride, we start going. It's way more intense than I remember. And all the kids are screaming and stuff like that. And I'm sitting next to Augustine, I'm holding his hand. And all of a sudden it comes to that part where they're shooting out fake arrows and there's like bursts of wind. And he turns and looks at me and holds my hand and he smiles like, Dad, you told me about this. And um, it doesn't mean he didn't like, you know, let go of my hand and relax. He was still tense. But there's a sense of as his father, my presence to him, me telling him about a greater level of reality than even what he's experiencing in his young senses gave him a level of deep comfort. And I think that this is what Jesus is doing even to an ancient persecuted church and even to a modern uncertain church. is saying, listen, I'm with you. I'm providing deep comfort and I'm walking with you through this. If you'll trust me, I will show you a deeper level of reality than the stock market, than political powers, than global war, than pandemic. Listen, I will tell you a greater reality. Sit close to me and I will make sure that you're safe. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Which leads to our kind of our third and final point today. Is that the opening lines of Mark introduce us to this subversive king, right? To this comforting shepherd. But it also points us to the resurrection life. Verse 9 says this, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. So we're introduced to Jesus, again, not as a baby, as a man coming, says, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. 
Um, I love this introduction to Jesus. So there's this huge kind of prep that John the Baptist does. Listen, you, if you think this is amazing, amazing, wait till you see who comes next. And then we are introduced to Jesus of Nazareth. And as he comes, you, and as he's baptized, we are introduced to a new sort of king. And, the, and there's a couple things that happen here that should really ring a bell, should be kind of like a hyperlink back to some things that should catch our imagination, especially for an early Christian, someone who's very, very familiar with the Bibles. Number one is that if you remember the very opening word of Mark's gospel is RK, it's in the beginning. What do you see happening in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 2? says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Bible begins with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Jesus' ministry begins with the Spirit of God coming and hovering over the waters of baptism. And rather than a new sort of creative order like in Genesis, it's retelling a story that not only is there a new physical creation, but rather there is a new kingdom reality that is coming forth through Jesus' life. And this is incredibly bold. It's poetic. But it's also explicit what Mark is trying to say. In the, same, in the same scale that the earth was created, Jesus coming is at that same level of change and shift that's happening. Martin Luther talks about Jesus' baptism like this. Thus, a Christian life is nothing else than a daily baptism, begun once and continuing ever after. For we must keep at it without ceasing, always purging whatever pertains to the old Adam so that whatever belongs to the new creature may come forth. And I love Martin Luther's thing that this is this story, this baptism story, this, this death to life motif is really the story of Christianity, that death is not final and that life is the ultimate story that's being told. And this is why Martin Luther says this is something we have to do again and again and again. This is why we see this happen in creation. We see it happen with Jesus. Is that this is the story of God. That even death itself cannot be contained with the abundant life that is swelling up because of what Jesus has brought. Dorothy Bass says this. Baptism embodies release from yesterday's sin and receipt for tomorrow's promise. Going under the water, the old self is buried in the death of Christ. Rising from the water, the self is new, joined to the resurrected Christ. And so what's happening here is that the baptism of Jesus is foreshadowing what's going to be played out at the end of the book. He's going to go underneath, tucked away in a grave, but he will come out again. And there's something of the Spirit of God hovering over this that is generating this. But it's also something that this new beginning that's happening in the story of human history is also representative of the new story that's happening with us. But it's not just, it's not just this kind of cool metaphor. It's also, keep in mind, the original audience would have been horrified by the king of their day, Caesar Nero. And think about the parallel pictures here. Caesar Nero burns down his city 
and then blames his people for his own sin. And here we have Jesus, who rather than burning down what's around him, breathes life into something new. But here's what's amazing. Rather than blaming someone for his own sin, this is a baptism of repentance, he takes on the sin and he bears it himself. Do you see that it's complete opposite picture of what Caesar near is? Jesus is introducing us not only to a version of a king, but a new kind of king altogether. And as he flips this idea of king on its head, know this, that the, the picture of baptism is not just encapsulates the picture of Christianity. It is the, the invitation we all are invited into. That Jesus' baptism, although he didn't need to repent for sin, was a picture that he was going to take on our sin, which is why baptism is such a beautiful part of the Christian story. And by the way, this Sunday, for those of you who are watching this on Sunday, is Baptism Sunday for us. Um, people have signed up to come and to immerse themselves in water and be brought back up as this prophetic picture of new life Jesus comes to bring. John Stott in his book, Secret Church, says this, being a Christian involves a personal, vital identification with Jesus Christ, and this union with him is dramatically set forth in our baptism. And T. Wright talks about baptism is, is the starting point of the Christian pilgrimage. And for the ancient Christians in Rome, fearing for their life, baptism was a deep sense of comfort. Oh, that's right. Even when we face death, we remember that we are brought and connected to and identify with the Savior who conquered that death into new life. Last quote I want to leave you with is from Mary Anderson, who's a Lutheran pastor, says this, When Jesus went down in the waters of the Jordan, Guided by John's rough hands, he did so in solidarity with sinners. Jesus' baptism was a demonstration of his obedience to God, a call he would soon be putting in the ear of all who wanted to follow him. This is the way it goes. Jesus said, wash off the old dirt, shake the dust of sin from your feet, God has created a new day and a new way. Come walk with me out of darkness into the light of day. Who is Jesus? Well, from the very beginning, we know that Jesus is a subversive king, a new kind of king. We know that he's a comforting shepherd. And we know that he, in and of himself, is the resurrection life. A couple practical things for you as we wrestle with and begin this new book. Um, number one is, is very practically, have you been baptized? Um, this isn't just a formality. This is, this, is the, this is how we live an embodied story of what the Christian faith is all about. Um, so if you can't be baptized this Sunday, sign up to be baptized for the following. But the, the next thing is this. If you are facing the immense pressure and loss from the past couple of years of uncertainty of that gray zone that we talked about, would you really begin to evaluate who is Jesus? Would you be willing to trust him to bring you deep comfort, to 
even if it feels like everything is lost, that God is propagating his reality, the new kingdom within you. And to recognize that the king you serve is not one who's, who is blaming you and burning things down, but rather identifies with you in his own baptism and says, I want to invite you into new life. If you've never given yourself over to Jesus and invited and, and responded to his invitation into new life, I'd encourage you to do that today, just to pray simply wherever you are, confess where you are, the things you've done, and invite Jesus to become the savior of your life. Well, we love you guys so much. We cannot wait to continue to journey with you uh, through the book of Mark. Grace and peace to you. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.